Hello and welcome back to the Optimizing Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Marty Kendall. On this show, we take an engineering approach and speak to the experts about the insights into weight loss, fasting and nutrition, as well as real life people about their journey of nutritional optimization. Hello, Dr. Ted Naiman. Great to finally get to chat to you after like I checked your, I was trolling your Facebook page, Burn Fat Not Sugar, and it's been like five and a half years I've been um, trolling you like a, like a bad smell. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's great to finally get to, to have a chat. And like we were saying before, it's like we're sort of uh, separated at birth and got a lot of similarities, been along a, a similar journey, made a whole lot of similar mistakes and had a similar learnings together. So, yeah, it's great to finally have a yak. Oh, yeah. No, thanks for having me. It's so cool to talk to you. You're like one of my nutrition heroes. And I didn't know you had the whole Adventist background that yeah. I had. I mean, what yeah. the hell? What are the odds of that? Yeah, we both grew up as um, SDA, Seventh-day Adventists, in a vegetarian household. And um, Wow. Yeah, all, all, all my rallies work for sanitarium. and um, Right. Yeah, anyway and all the issues that that come with that so i've had to go on a journey to unlearn a whole bunch of things and we've both arrived at a similar philosophy and nutrition so yeah it's so interesting it's almost like we had to just to escape our past <laughs> the antimatter comes together it, it's like you know how the superheroes all have some sort of horrible backstory or something terrible happened to him we were like vegetarian adventists oh my gosh yeah, wow yeah, yeah, yeah. that so, explains it it's it's pretty freaky. So yeah, I've been um, yeah, I suppose we've, we've had similar friends and similar influences and made similar mistakes. And um, most of my posts are like five thousand word captions to your simple <laughs> memes. So um, that that's been an honor to to use some of your graphics in my articles to try and explain what I'm on about because you know that the, the simple memes just cut through all the noise and once you see it you go oh yeah i get it but i thought today would be really cool to um to go through your journey a bit of a ted name and this is your life and this is your journey <laughs> of, of, of learning and unlearning all the things that you've had to you know from from uh, the dogma that you've you know not not starting at birth at sda world but maybe five years ago when we when we ran across each other so um you, you've, you've got to a point where Everything is very simple and clean. Um, the PE diet is just going off and it's just deadly simple. And I suppose um, I was chatting to our friend Andreas the other day and he said, you know, what, you know, what's wrong with the PE diet? Is there anything you can do to improve it? I said, no, Ted's just nailed the simplest thing you can tell people to improve their the health and nutrient density and um, for the patients to make it deadly simple so you've ended up with something that's just completely um bulletproof idiot proof that if you just move a little bit up that pe scale um you'll improve your health but yeah i suppose i've added a little bit more nuance and complexity around nutrient density to add on to that which we can talk about later and how much you're um into that or not but um yeah well, so there's more words in like one of your posts in my whole freaking book so like <laughs> you're definitely the word guy and i'm more like the <laughs> one syllable in a picture <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so um i suppose i've got a few slides here so i was i was um working through your you know, burn fat not sugar facebook page and you were definitely the low carb high fat guy and it was definitely a emphasis on high fat back when keto was you know just a baby five six years ago and we're all going this keto thing's amazing and if we just you know eat less carbs and, and we've got less insulin then we'll all disappear into nothing into a puddle and lose weight and be shredded and i suppose um then there was this um that i found on on, on your site that uh, you may or may not recognize depending on your memory but um uh Ivor cummings back in the day shared my little initial thesis on nutrition and I, I was trying to calculate the insulin load and insulinogenic calories of my wife's diet to try and stabilize blood sugars and insulin which was really cool for her and worked really amazingly and um, we, we developed uh, you know these are the most insulinogenic foods and these are the 
the greatest foods for uh, for keeping your insulin low. And you even generously, before I met Alex, developed a little calculator um, yep. to calculate the insulinogenic calories. So that was that was way cool. I was thrilled back then. Um, but I suppose we learned that there's limitations, and not everybody who drank more olive oil disappeared into nothing, unfortunately. So um, yeah, that, that 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 was cool. And this is something that that our friend Mike Julian shared with us. Um, I remember way back in the day, and, and it's sort of a bit of a aha moment that insulin really holds back the flow of stored energy from your body into your bloodstream, and the insulin is like a break on your system. So I thought that was that was really cool. So um, yeah, what, what do you? I'll, I'll shut up and let you comment. And um, yeah, yeah. Oh, first of all, I well, I still love this guy and his hyperlipid blog, and I also still can't pronounce his actual. <laughs> He's just Peter of Hyperlipid to me because like literally I've never heard anyone say his last name. But, you know, this is uh, Peter of Hyperlipid, the uh, retired veterinary anesthetist from the UK, I think. And he's like a super cool guy. But I, I did go through back in the day. I went through this just uh, super, super low carb, super high fat phase where like I listened to. Like I was a uh, Ron Rosedale fan way, way, way back in the day. Like I, I've, I met Dr. Rosedale and uh, he used to live not too far from me. And I have like a signed copy of his book. And, and I, I was such a fan and, and I would listen to him, you know, say things like your entire lifespan and health span can just be summed up as like how much glucose you burned versus how much fat you burned in your whole life. Like that's it. And I, mm. and I, I actually, you know, for a minute there, I really did get sucked into the, if low carb is good, even lower carb is better. And then the ultimate is just 100% pure fat. And I was all in on the insulin uh, hypothesis and the uh, fat is a free food. And I, mm. you know, for a, if, for a hot five minutes there, I was just as bad as anyone like, or worse or way worse. And, uh, and I totally, um, recognize that and, and realize that. But at the time I just uh, kind of went along with this whole like keto movement that, uh, was pretty popular right mm, then. Yeah. Know? I was drinking bulletproof coffee and. Oh, we all were, before. man. It was oh, like butter mm -hmm. and. Yeah, I looked in the mirror and then I was like, oh, geez, that's uh, not quite working for me as well as mm -hmm. I hoped. So um, th this, is a, this is a meme that you shared that I think helped me understand what insulin does. And, that, you know, insulin, like I said before, is that break on the liver that holds back your fat in storage. So people that are more obese are secreting more insulin. Um, and then, you know, similarly, fasting insulin, which is what, the, you know, your insulin that holds back overnight um your fat in storage is related to how obese you are and you know when you look at type one people with type one diabetes um i, I don't think most people who are don't have a, a pet type one diabetic to to play with and watch all their insulin glucose movements understand that you know the majority of your insulin for money 80 percent of her insulin daily dose is just required to stop her body disintegrating it's just those little bumps um, when she eats that you know raise and we we see the the glucose excursion and the insulin excursion after carbs and say carbs are really bad but it's uh you know that insulin that holds your body fat in storage that you've really got to attack so that was a really big aha moment for me i don't know whether you want to unpack that and explain that a bit more uh, for me. sure yeah so uh a few years ago uh, about five years ago, I just started researching anything I could find on insulin because I knew that hyperinsulinemia was bad. Mm. So I just did this first order approximation where since high insulin is bad, anything that raises insulin is bad, uh, aka carbs are bad. And that's just as far as I went with it. It was like just a you know, five-year-old mentality where high insulin is bad, anything that raises insulin is bad, carbs are really, really bad. But then after researching insulin, I realized that the, the purpose of insulin is anti-catabolism. Insulin's role is to keep everything in storage instead of flooding back out into your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. 
And mm. anyone who's got had the privilege of working with a type one diabetic or mm. being type one diabetic or having exposure to type one diabetes starts to get that. As soon as mm. you have this insulin deficiency, every stored fuel in your bloodstream, I mean, in your body just streams out into your mm. bloodstream. You have just this uncontrolled lipolysis where all of your glucose comes out of glycogen storage into the bloodstream. All of your fat comes out of your fat cells into the bloodstream. All, your, your whole body just gets melted down into energy and it floods your bloodstream. What and insulin is go through the roof and, you know, which is what we think we want. But right. Every fuel just goes crazy. And then you're just peeing out sugar and you just, your whole body melts down into a skeleton. And what insulin's doing is holding everything in. It's mm. anti-catabolic and it's doing that by sensing fuels in your bloodstream and if fuels are entering your bloodstream, it's going up to hold everything in mm. your circulation. That's how it keeps uh, fat from streaming out of all your fat cells. That's how it keeps all your proteins from breaking down. That's how mm. it keeps all of your glycogen from flooding into your system. Insulin is like this wall that's holding everything in storage. And as soon as you're insulin deficient, it all just comes flooding in, out into your circulation. Now, when you eat something and there's more fuels in your bloodstream, Insulin doesn't really necessarily know where that came from. It just knows there's fuels in your bloodstream. So it's got to do its thing and it just immediately halts lipolysis. Mm -hmm. And that's what insulin's primary role is. And once you realize that it's anti-catabolic, mm. you kind of get this whole different yeah. feel for insulin. And then once you, re once you understand the uh, personal fat threshold and the fact that you don't have a good place to store things, then you start to realize why insulin's high all the time in over fat people and why it's so bad. And uh, you get to sort of disentangle chronically high insulin from no, mm. from a lack of storage from acute insulin you get if you just ate some carbs. And yeah, there are two totally different things. Me, mm -hmm. but I understood that. And, and just that, you know, when you eat carbs, your body says, hey, I don't have anywhere to store that glucose. Let's raise insulin to shut down the release of lipolysis so we can clear the carbohydrates quickly. Protein's mm -hmm. a little bit slower and fat. The body says, yeah, I, I can store that. Let's not really shut down lipolysis as much. And it happens over a longer time. But over the fullness of time, everything raises insulin. And, and the way to attack that is to, you know, find a way to eat less in a sustainable manner. Exactly, exactly. And it's all about, uh, your pancreas is really just a fuel sensor, a fuel pressure sensor. And if mm. fuels are low, glucagon goes up to raise fuels in the bloodstream, lipolysis, glycogenolysis, breakdown of whatever to make energy. But if uh, fuels are too high, then insulin's there halting mm. uh, the release of any stored fuels so you can clear out what's already in the bloodstream. Mm. Yeah, and so um, I think when you had that realization, you came out with this that uh, triggered the low-carb community a fair bit and people went, wait up, I need more fat. I can't, I can't, you know, I need the fat. But, you know, we'll, I think, eventually have a lot of us have been on a journey of, of unlearning and, and relearning. So, um um, yeah, so this, I just love this. I think you need to be an engineer and, and digest it a lot. But I think this came up about when we were chatting in a group and, and you came up with this and went, wow, that really summarizes everything we're trying to understand about the personal fat threshold and the role of insulin. And so do you want to unpack? I think that personal fat threshold is just, it, it blew my mind thinking about diabetes and just, you know, uh, metabolic syndrome and hyperinsulinemia, and it, it really pointed back to the the real solution, which is reducing energy toxicity. So do you want to unpack the personal fat threshold and, and what this little chart means? Absolutely. So every bit of fat that you eat has to be stored somewhere mechanically, like the, the actual carbons in the fat have to go somewhere. And you store fat in your fat cells. So you have a certain number of subcutaneous fat cells on your body. And they all have a diameter. They can go from, you know, maybe 20 microns up to 200 microns. And they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And as you expand them, there is a maximum size they can reach. And as, as they get bigger, they stimulate the production of more baby fat cells. So you have more room to store. Um, 
some people can make bazillions of fat cells, but some people can't. These are your skinny fat people, like uh, a lot of Asian people or people from India or South Central Asia. They can't make a lot of fat cells. They're never really like on my 600 pound life. So mm -hmm. they, um, as their fat cells get bigger and bigger, they sprout any new fat cells that they can, but there will be a limit to everyone. So eventually mm -hmm. you've filled up all these fat cells. Now the fat sort of spills over and has to go into your visceral fat cells. And mm -hmm. so now you get the waist circumference expanding and the apple shape and the insulin resistance because you don't have a really easy, good way to store fat. Eventually you fill up all these fat cells, then fat spills over into ectopic fat. That's when you get fatty liver, fatty pancreas, fat everywhere it's not supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And your insulin's getting higher and higher. Your chronic basal insulin because you have all these all these triglycerides in your bloodstream and you don't have a good place to put them. So like a really, really thin person who's super skinny and dieted down, if they eat a, uh, an oral fat tolerance test, so they drink like a cup of heavy whipping cream, uh, the triglycerides go up in their bloodstream and then boom, the triglycerides are just gone because all your fat cells just suck the fat right out of your bloodstream the first time fun. around. Right. But if you're over fat and you've already ran out of good fat storage places, those triglycerides just circulate and circulate and circulate and circulate and circulate. And none of the fat cells have any room for them. You can't shove it in anywhere. And you, that's where you start seeing the chronically high triglycerides of hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. And that's when you've hit your personal fat threshold. And really, truly, the PFT is where you're so over fat and you have so you've so totally run out of places to store fat. All your fat cells are full. Your muscle is full of fat, intramuscular triglycerides. You can't put fat anywhere. That's when your blood sugar starts going mm. up. And mm. your blood sugar going up and diabetes is like the end stage of insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. It's the end stage of the personal fat threshold. You've maxed out your fat storage. Now your cells won't even take glucose. Even though gl glucose is toxic, Mm. All your cells are like in complete energy refusal mode because they're filled with fat. Mm. So the biggest problem is that every cell in your body is filled with fat. Your bloodstream is filled with fat. No, nothing, none of your cells are taking the fat. And now they really don't want glucose. They're like, I'm not taking any, any, any glucose. That's PFT. That's the personal fat mm. threshold. That's what we're talking about. That's what that graphic illustrates. The top of the dam is where you have no place to store any more fat. And we're really talking about fat here, not carbohydrates. Carbs just isocalorically displace fat oxidation. So if I eat, you know, 100 calories of carbs, I'm just going to temporarily not burn 100 calories of fat during that period of time. So but most fat is stored as fat, most of your stored fat comes from dietary fat. And then eating carbs just temporarily displaces fat oxidation isocalorically. So like you're burning fat, burning fat, burning fat, you eat 100 grams of carbs and you and you stop burning 100, I mean, you eat 100 calories from carbs, you stop burning 100 calories of fat until the carbs are gone and then you're back to burning fat again. And, and when you look at it from an oxidative priority point of view, I sort of see it as like you got your body fat, the fat in your blood, then, then your carbs and, and the glucose in your blood and any anything you eat upstream of that is sort of fuel stacked up upstream that if you're if the sponge of your adipose tissue is full it just you know just backs up in the system so you think you know people say you know diabetes is a disease of carbohydrate intolerance but it's really a, a matter of your fat stores are full so you're stuck burning carbs all the time and and they the glucose spills over into the blood because Yes, fat storage is full. It's really a disease of too much fat in your body. You know, like, you know, 99% of all the energy in your body, more than that, is fat. And most of the energy in your bloodstream, you know, 10 to 1, more than that is fat. And in your cells, it's fat. It's, it's mostly a fat problem where you're over fat. And that's simply because animals store almost all of their calories as fat, statistically speaking. Glucose is just... The, the one thing that we're looking for, if you could measure free fatty acids in your blood, mm. you'd see these go up way before blood sugar goes up. That's why everybody with prediabetes and metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance has high triglycerides for 20 mm. years before they have a high blood sugar. Mm. Um, so it's really a fat, fat storage problem.
And almost all that stored fat comes from dietary fat. And that's something that the low carbosphere doesn't really like to say out loud. Yeah, I really like this one. And we talk about insulin toxicity, but you know, let's let's look upstream and what's causing insulin toxicity. Your insulin is rising because of your energy toxicity, because you know you're eating a low satiety, nutrient poor diet. So I think this is uh, just a critical thing to understand when it comes to go. What do I eat to be metabolically healthy? For sure. Um, so yeah, I love that one. Uh, uh, do you want to explain this one briefly? I think it's really cool. Oh, right. Okay. All right. So for some reason, and I don't know exactly why, if you feed high energy density carbs and fats together to any omnivore mammal, they will just immediately eat 30%, 40% more calories and get fat. Uh, you can take any, you could take a lab rat, you could take a mouse, you could take a dog or a cat or a bear or any, um, you know, reasonably omnivore mammal and you feed them just human junk food, you know, um, little Debbie's, for example, <laughs> for the Adventists out there, uh, <laughs> they will just immediately overeat and immediately get fatter. It's just um, almost an automatic thing. And I don't, I can't tell anybody exactly how or why this works. It does seem to spike dopamine in the brain. It does seem to be highly rewarding. Um, we love eating this energy because we were constantly energy constrained uh, for, you know, the entirety of human existence prior to the Industrial Revolution. But you couldn't get enough energy in your diet and you're constantly seeking out more dietary energy, carbs and fats. And to have them both together is so tasty and rewarding. Your body knows this is going to help you survive the winter mm -hmm. and you just eat the hell out of it. And that's what's going on in that graph. This is basically just lab um rats, I believe, who are mm -hmm. being fed human junk food and, uh, you know, like pizza and donuts and candy bars and anything that's carb and fat together with a high energy density. And you're just going to overeat it. And that, it, in my opinion, that explains a full 50% of the entire global obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, all of our problems, at least half of it is the rewarding nature of high energy density carbs and fats together. They have to be you, it can't just be carbs by itself. It can't be fat by itself. It can't be low density carbon fat together. It has to be high energy density carbs and fats together. You know, some sort of sugar flour oil, you know, your, your shortbread with sugar and flour and butter. It, you're not going to just overeat sugar by itself. You're not going to overeat butter by itself. But man, you put sugar, flour, and butter together and bake that stuff. I will eat my body weight in shortbread. And that's how it, that's half of the whole obesity epidemic and i just firmly believe that yeah i th this this little uh graphic explains it really well that you know these foods are not available in nature you get uh carbs in summer more fat and protein in winter but you know we've created this hyper autumnal um hyper palatable sort of combination of foods by mixing sugar and flour together. And um, our friend Sian Foley does a really good job of explaining it and bringing it back oh, to yeah. the winter and that these foods, the, the breast milk, the acorns and the nuts, were only available for a very short amount of time. And it seems to signal to our body or those foods are available leading up to winter to enable us to binge eat basically. And it just signals a hyperphagy that we eat and eat and eat. And once we eat and eat and eat, the insulin raises and then you've got hyperinsulinemia, but it's because of the food you're eating, not necessarily because of the carbs that raised insulin in the short term. Yeah. And a huge shout out to Foley and his book, don't eat for winter. I mean, nobody has, nobody has done a better job describing this than he has. So I, he, he needs a lot more credit than he gets yeah. for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so speaking of uh, other influences um what up i'll just bring my share screen back up um you may recognize this chart do you want to explain uh who made it and how they made it uh oh yes the, these are my favorite researchers doctors Rabenheimer and simpson um in your part of the world and these guys have been researching protein and the protein leverage hypothesis of obesity for decades and what they realized is that basically over the entirety of the obesity epidemic, 
protein percent of the diet has gone from about 14% down to 12.5%. And that's basically more than enough to explain uh, a big percentage of the fact that everyone's overeating. And they also highlighted the fact that protein is the most expensive macronutrient mm. by far. This is a graph of every food in the grocery store based on its macronutrients. And you can see that if you increase fat and carbs in a food, it's practically free. So like, it's all about mm. the protein. The, the price of a food is just linear with the grams of protein in it. So, you know, you buy your, your happy meal, you buy your hamburger meal and like, large fries large soda that's like 10 cents but yeah, you yeah. put an extra patty on that burger it's like two dollars so like it's all about the protein and that's why protein dilution is is purely economic the economics mm. are huge here protein is the most expensive macronutrient by a mile it's the most expensive to produce it's has a lot more logistical factors, refrigeration and transport and cooking and shelf life. And there's so many things about protein that make it so much more expensive. You know, cereal grains have a shelf life of like a hundred years and refined carbs and fats, like sugar and flour and oil can sit on the shelf mm -hmm. for decades. And the, the, uh, the, basically the profit margin on like a box mm -hmm. of cereal is off the charts, but but things like meat and things with a shelf life and refrigeration, the profit margin is really low and the cost is really high. Yeah. Is it any wonder they want to sell you plant-based burgers and, you know, all the, it's the sugar and flour and oil is just so incredibly cheap, but it's so low satiety, low nutrient density all at the same time. It's terrible. And you can grab, you can draw a map of obesity and a map of poverty and they just line mm. up completely. And it's just really terrible and kind of sad. Yeah. And unfortunately, like the, the farm subsidy, big agriculture system just propagates it and supports that in a lot of ways. So we're, we're subsidizing the foods that are the cheapest and make us most obese. So yeah. Right. Scary situation. So, um, yeah, th th this is this is essentially the solution to hyperinsulinemia, um, hyperphagia, um, energy toxicity, insulin toxicity is is to prioritize foods with more um, protein percentage, higher protein percentage, and try to limit those. So I suppose one thing that a lot of people don't, well, I didn't get when trying to explain it, is that it's not about eating more protein necessarily. It's just a higher percentage of protein so you don't necessarily have to eat massive amounts of protein to to get better satiety and that may be a bad thing because often comes with you know, if you eat a, more butter to get your protein you're going to be eating a lot of calories so it's about dialing up slowly progressively you, you keep trying to emphasize that in all your interviews it's not about eating, going to the 50%, 60% protein. It's just about, you know, are you at 12? Let's go to 15. And if that doesn't work for you, let's go to 20 maybe and just slowly titrating that up. Right, right, exactly. And and this is my, this is actually my favorite study anywhere on anything. This is at Rabenheimer and Simpson's amazing meta-analysis of I think 116 studies where humans ate ad-lib amounts of calories and they looked at the macronutrients involved and realized that going from the highest ad-lib energy intake to the lowest was really just 100% linear about the protein percentage and the carb and fat uh, had very little to do with it. The fat uh, quantity had almost nothing to do with it whatsoever. It was mostly protein. Um, mm. Very dramatic, very dramatic study. And the highest ad-lib energy intakes are at super low protein and high carbs. And the exact opposite for the lowest energy intake, super low carb, high protein. And it's just such an amazing, amazing study. I mean, I think this is pure gold. I don't know why. I, I don't, you know, I've read huge, huge articles on obesity in the medical literature. And they'll talk all about all the various forms of bariatric surgery, all of the weight loss drugs. They'll talk all about um the the gastric balloons and the different crazy devices and they'll talk about all of this stuff and nobody's talking about this it's just crickets and i just don't understand it, it's very uh, i i have intentionally not gotten board certified in obesity medicine 
because I'm disgusted by the fact that you can have a whole obesity week and nobody mentions this shit at all, at all. It's all about drugs and surgeries and devices. And it's, it's like, okay, I can have a bulimia device implanted in my stomach and they'll talk about that for a whole day at obesity week. And no one's talking about this. I mean, it's just upsetting. Yeah. I am. Um... This is one of my favorites that it just explains really clearly what the issue is. It's that combination of fat and carbs together. It's not the extreme carb or the extreme fat. And I, I love that it's just, you know, so simply you, and you keep on rabbiting on about, you know, you can explain this. You can explain why vegan plant-based vegans are really skinny and you can explain why people on low carb are really skinny. You can explain why, um, lean bodybuilders are, are shredded all with this paradigm. It's just the simple Occam's razor of, of nutrition, really. Yeah, yeah, I love this one. I'm I'm laughing because um, this was before I sold the book and I was still paying off my student loans. And uh, th this graphic, I could have bought on like Shutterstock for $10. <laughs> but instead, I just downloaded like a, ha a hacked one off the internet. And it's just all pixelated. And I, I just like erased the watermark off of it. And so this uh, is like an illegally stolen low resolution graphic. Which I stole from you. <laughs> and it's just like, it's so embarrassing. Oh, man. Yeah, man. You, you, you should pay for the uh, pay for the background image now and uh, use it. So I yeah, need to. Every, everything you talk about just aligns with what we see in our analysis of um, the, the data from Nutrient Optimizer is that people who eat higher percentage of fat and carbs together, the population intake is up here at about 75, eat more. And as people reduce their energy from fat and carbs, I mean, really fat and carbs are both carbon-carbon bonds in different sort of amount of bonding. I don't know whether you're going to talk about it, that you're, the biochemistry is not my strong point, but, you know, carbs and fat are both energy uh, just in different uh, explosiveness i suppose right they're they're all just carbon hydrogen and oxygen in chains of high energy bonds so hydrocarbons which are fats and carbohydrates which are carbs are all just chains of high energy bonds between carbons and car carbon carbon and carbon hydrogen all of which you just break down in your mitochondria kind of indiscriminately um, the only big difference between the two is how fast they burn mm. and how much they weigh. So uh, glucose burns six times faster. So if you're sprinting for your life, you're gonna burn 100% glucose because you can get energy from it. You can make ATP out of glucose six times faster than you can fat. So if you're just walking for 100 miles, you'll burn exclusively fat. But mm. if you're sprinting for your life for 60 seconds, you're gonna burn exclusively glucose. The other big difference is just glucose is water soluble and fat is absolutely not water soluble and ha they have to be ferried around your bloodstream in two entirely different ways and they're stored differently uh glucose has to be stored as glycogen which has a lot of water involved with it and it's very heavy it's six times larger and heavier for the same amount of calories as fat storage mm. so fat is like super tiny and super light and totally dehydrated with no water Mm. And very slow burning. So you're just going to run off that forever and you can carry it around. But glucose is like this big, expensive, fast burning, but hard to carry around jet fuel type thing. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're, your body wants both, but just a little bit of glucose because it's so hard to carry around. Mm, yeah. So they're both energy, just in different forms for different purposes. And yeah, so protein to energy. Hey, so, um, mm -hmm. so the, the, the bottom line is, um, this is what you need to avoid. And um, and then, you know, I, I love this. Food quality determines food quantity. So the amount, what you eat determines how much you eat. And I love that you talk about front-loading protein and nutrients and then sort of topping up. You don't initially know why you're hungry, but if, you know, make sure you get your protein first. And if you need to, you can top up on some energy because you still need energy, but most people are getting way too much, which leads to all the issues. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so this is a cool one. I think um, we both think nutrient density is, is definitely important. Um, so do you want to explain this? Uh, maybe, um, I don't sure. know if you want to go into the, the atmospheric carbon. Maybe you can. <laughs> 
uh, yeah, how has nutrient density changed in our food system? Well, basically plants, so plants are autotrophs. They make their own food. Animals are heterotrophs, so we're only alive because we constantly eat other animals or other plants. And so plants are making all the food for all animals. Plants are at the base of the food chain. And plants do two things. They convert solar energy uh, into chemical energy, these carbs uh, and fats, these chains of hydrocarbons and, uh, and carbohydrates, the high-energy carbon and uh, carbon, carbon, and carbon, hydrogen bonds that we burn all come from solar energy, photosynthesis, stored as carbs and fats. So plants are using sunlight, air, and water to make energy, carbs and fats, but they're sucking minerals up from the soil to make nitrogen for all of our protein and all of these other minerals that you see in this graph here. So it's two totally separate things. It's like sunlight, air, and water to make energy, and then minerals coming up from the soil. Uh, because atmospheric carbon dioxide has doubled in you know the past couple hundred years, like 300 years of the Industrial Revolution, um, plants have way more carbons to make energy out of. So they've made more and more and more energy, but they haven't gotten more minerals from the soil. In fact, after we grow plants, we, we do this stupid monocropping where we grow fields in this, the same plants in the same field year after year after year and 50 years later, uh, all your plant foods have half the minerals that they used to have because of topsoil depletion. So now we got tons more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, way more carbon energy, way more carbs and fats, but all the minerals from the soil is getting depleted. And so we've just blown out the P to E ratio mm. um, because we got more energy, more energy, more energy, and less minerals, including nitrogen for protein. So mm. it's basically the P E ratio has already fallen just naturally in all our plant foods and that's at the base of the whole food pyramid yeah and definitely over time like you said that the same soils over and over again just get depleted and you just keep jamming in fossil fuel fertilizers and you get a, a lower nutrient density and we definitely like protein's definitely the biggest lever but all the other minerals definitely have a similar sort of relationship that the more you get per calorie it aligns with satiety when they're together. So um, this is a, an image we were talking about the other day in, in a group, um, you know, energy balance is king, macronutrients are important, but then micronutrients is sort of a, a lower order effect. Um, but I, from what I see, once you get enough protein, it, you, you're getting most of the nutrients you need. And then dialing in micronutrients is just that fine tuning and that the icing on the cake in a way to, to dial in optimize your diet not that everybody needs to go to the nth degree but if you're getting your protein you're getting a lot of your micronutrients at the same time right i i feel like protein is the biggest rock in the jar and all the other rocks are a lot smaller and then you've got some rocks that are basically just sand and so the the protein percent of your diet is probably the biggest rock in the entire jar in my opinion yeah, no, definitely. And we see that in the data um, has definitely has the biggest effect. If you want to say I've, I've ranked them all and analyzed it from all our data and it's crazy. It's just protein comes out, protein percentage comes out at the top of the, the pile, which is essentially, essentially protein to every, energy ratio. Mm -hmm. um, so um, a couple of people had questions on extended fasting. Um, I sort of like this chart. And why is it important to balance feasting and fasting? And uh, what, what problems do you see with long-term fasting? Um, I, and I will just come right out and say it. I am not a fan of extended fasting. I never recommend extended fasting. I never have recommended extended fasting. I never tell anyone to fast definitely over 24 hours. I actually think probably the sweet spot is more of just like a 16-8 intermittent fast, which helps people get in touch with hunger and fullness and maybe just makes mealtimes more convenient. But I think that extended fasting is a disaster for a number of reasons. First of all, people get so hungry that they end up eating the higher energy foods first instead of, you know, something with a higher, more protein or nutrient density. I also see with extended fasting, people are, are losing weight. And then when they go back to eating, they're just eating the same things they were eating before and they go right back to the same weight they were before. So you're Good. eating, you're eating, you're eating. You're not happy with your body composition. You're eating certain foods. Now you fast, lose the weight. 
go back to eating, gain it all back again. You're still eating the same diet. It's you have to eat eventually. So you're just, you're just displacing down the road. You're just procrastinating eating, but you're still going to eat the same things you ate before and your body composition will go right back to where it was before. So I see people losing and then gaining the same five pounds over and over and over again. I'm five pounds overweight. I fast for a couple of days and I lose it. Go back to eating the same things, gain it right back again. It's like the ultimate yo-yo diet. And then when you're losing a uh, higher than desirable percentage of what you're losing is lean mass because you're not mm. eating protein. So you're actually losing, you know, maybe 60% fat mass, 40% lean mass instead of the 95% fat mass and 5% lean mass you'd get if you were just eating nothing but protein and lifting weights. Like mm. if you're just at least eating enough protein and lifting weights, you can slash the energy, the carbon fats really low. And 95% of what you lose might be pure fat because you're retaining protein and uh, resistance exercise will basically stimulate the retention of lean mass. So protein and lifting and then mm -hmm. just shaving the energy down is the smart way to do it. And that's really PDE ratio and resistance exercise. Then you're going to lose mostly fat and you're going to have an easier time keeping it off because your lean mass is all maintained and your metabolic rate's gonna be that much higher when you're, uh, you know, when you go back to maintenance. So I don't like extended fasting. It doesn't teach people what to eat. Mm. Just like not eating is, it's so easy that nobody even has to learn it and it's not that helpful and you didn't learn anything. I mean, yeah. maybe you learn how to tolerate hunger, which is probably good, which is I think why a little bit of intermittent fasting might be useful just getting in touch with the hunger and fullness cues. Um, but it's not, it's not a good weight loss plan. I don't recommend extended fasting. I'm not a huge fan. Yeah. I think sometimes people push through the hunger so much that they get disconnected from the true hunger. And then they try to eat normally again with data driven fasting. We have people just say, you know, I've, I've done extended fasting for so long. I've got no, feel for my true hunger so you know they don't know how to eat two times a day and, and like it's really hard to get enough protein in one meal a day let alone alternate day fasting or extended fasting and when you like you said when you're brief feed you, you're going for the peanut butter and cheese and chocolate and because you've you've earned it and your lizard brain just says let's go let's let's eat this stuff I've, i deserve this but because mm -hmm. you've got lower protein you're losing all that lean mass and metabolically in the long term probably not going to be optimal yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so finally, this is your your latest uh, summary of uh, everything I've learned in the last five years that that's triggered the the low carb ketoverse. Um, please explain the your, your view on the carb insulin hypothesis and um, yeah. And, and you know, I okay, I love all these carb insulin hypothesis people. I love Taubes. I love Dr. Ludwig. I love Dr. Lustig. I love all the carb insulin people. And um, I used to believe in it completely myself. The problem is there's just way too many black swans, right? The, like the, the standard carb insulin model was that eating carbs raises insulin and that puts your body into storage mode. And like the really dumb version that I've labeled ridiculous here is that just eating carbs and having high insulin just makes you fat. Now that is completely impossible because you mm -hmm. can, when you store fat, it's a mechanical process. You have to actually have the carbon atoms in fat to store fat. You can't just create fat out of thin air, right? Like you have to literally count every single carbon atom that's involved with fat. Every time you eat fat, all of those carbon atoms are literally gonna end up being stored as fat, except for maybe a few that you don't absorb and they travel through your digestive tract, or maybe a few that are burned while they're in your circulation on their way to your fat cells. But statistically speaking, all the fat you eat gets stored in your fat cells and you can literally count every carbon atom that you've eaten and then every carbon atom that appears in your adipocytes and fat will only leave your body when it's oxidized in your mitochondria and you exhale it as carbon dioxide. And again, you can just count the carbons. I'm eating the carbons from fat. The carbons are being stored in my fat cells. 
the carbons are being, uh, the fat is being oxidized in my mitochondria. And one by one, you can count all those carbon atoms being exhaled in your breath. And so like literally you can't create fat out of nothing. It's just straight up thermodynamics. So you cannot become fat just because your insulin's high. I could mm. inject you with a hundred gallons of insulin every minute of every day forever. And you won't create any fat. You won't generate any fat. You won't get any fatter. It's physically impossible. Mm. That's why I labeled that as ridiculous. Now, the I think another way of looking at interject there, well, like, People say, I can make you fat by injecting you with insulin. And yeah, you can make somebody fat by injecting insulin because if I grab my wife's insulin needle and ran around and jamming you with insulin all day, your blood sugar would drop because your lipolysis would stall. You'd get really hungry, reach for the you know, jar of peanut butter and donuts and eat a whole lot more. And mm -hmm. because the exogenous insulin is shutting off your release of stored energy, you're going to get really hungry. But you're own pancreas doesn't create more insulin than it absolutely needs to to hold back the floodgates of of your stored energy while you're still eating so then understanding exogenous versus endogenous insulin is just critical to this carb insulin hypothesis and understanding the the true solution right right and and actually that's why the second one that i've labeled just incorrect uh, there is a grain of truth there so like um in that model, you eat carbs, you raise insulin, that makes you hungrier, and then you eat more food and you get fatter. That one actually respects the laws of thermodynamics. That could actually happen. And in fact, there are, are extremely rare people with insulinomas, which is a uh, pancreatic tumor that produces insulin, and about 30 or 40% of them will be fatter when they're diagnosed than the average person. In fact, they, I think they usually gain anywhere from five to 15 extra kilograms um, uh, between when they're diagnosed and when they have their surgery. Uh, in like two or three years, your average insulinoma person's gonna gain five, 10, 15 kilos because they're, they are producing more insulin and they are hungry and they are eating more. And so there is something to that but what you're pointing out is the fact that your body's not going to produce more insulin than it needs to just hold your energy mm. into its storage. And that's why I think looking at basal insulin is far more important than mm. the spikes of insulin from eating. So mm. this basal insulin is never going to be artificially high just because you ate carbs. And that's why in pretty much any study that matches protein and calories, you can isocalorically replace carbs with fat or fat with carbs, and you will get the exact same outcome. And I think that really does falsify this basic model. Although there is a grain of truth there. Like you said, if you chase me around with your wife's uh, insulin pen, uh, I would be hungry. I would gain weight. Or if I had an insulinoma, I would gain weight. So there is something, there is something to that. And I see that and I admit it but I don't think that explains your average garden variety obesity. And in fact, if you isocalorically replace all your carbs with fat or fat with carbs, you don't see any differences. Yeah. Um, cool. That, that, that's awesome. We had a, a bunch of rapid fire questions from optimized nutrition groups. So um, we'll, we'll run through them. Um, so what's the most common advice that you give your patients that works every time? Oh, these days it's track your macros and get your protein percent higher. So I honestly think that if you told someone whose goal is fat loss and recomposition uh, to get their protein calorie, uh, protein percent of calories to, you know, 30, 40%, if you really want to, if you really want guaranteed success, if you get your protein to 40% of your calories, you are going to have recomp and you are going to reverse your diabetes and you are going to have fat loss. And that's probably the single biggest lever in the box. It's probably the single biggest rock in the jar. It's probably mm. the one thing that's going to make the biggest difference for most people. And it's simultaneously increasing satiety per calorie and also reducing that high energy density carbon fat together thing that makes everyone overeat. So it's just a win all the way around. Plus all of your data has really amazingly demonstrated how well nutrient density tracks with protein. And mm -hmm. so it's like a triple win. You're automatically getting protein satiety, increasing satiety per calorie, 
increasing micronutrient density and reducing the high energy density carbs and fats together. So if there's just one thing I could tell everyone to do, it would be make protein, you know, 35, 40% of your calories. It's just like hitting a wind button. You, you literally can't lose doing something like that. Yeah, definitely. And so how long do you generally get people to track for? You, you don't want them to track forever to count calories. It's just a short-term thing to recalculate. Right. I think everyone should temporarily track what they're eating because it's mind-blowing. Like, you just don't realize how much abject garbage you're eating. Like, I have so many patients who are like, oh, I, I barely eat. I don't <laughs> I, I, there's, I only eat like 800 calories a day. I just have such a slow metabolism. I've never been able to lose weight. I eat healthy. I eat, I eat chicken. I ate chicken just last month. Uh, yeah, it's like, but when you actually track what you're eating and you actually look at every single thing you eat, most people are just eating just little bits of abject trash all the time. And their macros are horrible and their nutrient density is horrible and their protein percent is horrible. And I think that really explains the outcomes we're getting in, in, in most people. And you just don't know until you track that stuff. And then once you track it, it's like a skill. Like e eating mm. to get lean and stay lean is a major skill you have to learn. Just like you have to learn how to do deadlifts or you have to learn how to do pull-ups or you have to learn how to do all this stuff. And eating in a way where you're just going to automatically be successful is a learned skill. And mm. at least temporarily tracking your calories and your macros is super important and everyone should do that at least temporarily. I don't think anybody has to track long-term. I sure don't. Mm. Nobody has to, but you have to learn how to do that temporarily just to know what the hell you're actually eating. Yeah. It's amazing how powerful just that self-reflection and once you're actually entering it in, you go, mm, okay, I do eat that. And you have to admit it to yourself. And often when people track, they eat a whole lot less because they're just observing mm -hmm. what they eat and they think before they eat it. I mean, it was mind blowing to me because I was like, holy crap, you know, before I would have just eaten this whole thing. And that's like a thousand calories of nuts or some shit like that. Like I was, yeah, once you track, it's really, really eye opening. Mm. Um, so advice to someone just starting on their journey. Do you have any, uh, anything other than PE? Uh, so basically the two things for me are track everything you're eating. So, you know, what the heck you're actually eating. And then number two, the, if you want to pull on the biggest lever, if you want to pick the lowest hanging fruit uh, that there is, it's protein percentage. Mm. Um, so what do you eat every day? What, what are the five things that you eat most often? The five foods that I eat most often? Oh, eggs are definitely really high on the list. I eat a ton of eggs. I eat a lot of eggs. Uh, I eat a lot of salmon. So I live in Seattle, so you almost have to eat salmon here. <laughs> But I eat a ton of salmon. That's definitely in very heavy rotation. Um, yeah. I eat a lot of sort of low-carb, low-fat dairy, whey powder, Greek yogurt, um, that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, um, uh, low-fat low cheese, uh, uh, low-fat cottage cheese, low-fat uh, plain Greek yogurt, uh, whey powder. I, so it's basically low-carb and low-fat dairy, eggs, salmon, Ground beef, I buy the just the leanest ground beef I can get. Um, uh, you know, like the anything that starts with a nine, ninety percent or something leaner ground beef, and I eat the hell out of that. Um, yeah, I, that's probably more than five. I eat a lot of berries, so one of my biggest carb sources is berries. So I eat a ton of those. So it's just lots of basically uh, ruminant eggs, seafood, berries, and low carb, low fat dairy. Cool. Um, what's your daily eating routine? When do you, do you have a window particularly that you try to work to? I usually do a 16-8, and I'm not super rigid. I just eat when I'm hungry, but it, it tends to just sort of coalesce down into a 16-8 with two major meals and maybe a snack in the middle, and I tend to eat later. I'm just not as hungry in the morning, so I tend to backload those calories, and I'll mostly eat lunch and then like a snack and then dinner, sort of a later, basically a a backloaded 16.8. So you try to prioritize your protein earlier in the day and then like fill up on energy later right. on? Right. The first meal might be just nothing but protein. Like I will literally eat 
just chicken breasts or the leanest beef you can get or something that's extremely boring and protein. And I try to really get all that protein in, in that first meal. And then, I, and then I also start with protein at subsequent meals as well. Um, and then I kind of eat energy dead last. I tend to eat carbs dead last. Like the first meal of the day for me is just protein and fiber. And it might be just like fish and salad. It might be uh, chicken breasts and uh, some snap peas or something like that. It's just really just a lot of protein and maybe some fiber. And then carbs are tend to be dead last for me, almost like a dessert. Like I'll eat a bunch of berries or apples or fruit or plain popcorn or something like a dessert. Uh, at the very, very, very end of my day. And I find that the satiety per calorie I get from those carbs then is huge. Mm. Versus if I eat carbs first thing in the morning and like no protein, I'm, I find myself just eating carbs mm. all day long. I'm on this roller coaster. So I like to save that for dead last. And for some reason that just really works for me. It's front load all my protein and my micronutrients. And then carbs are dead last, almost like a dessert. Yeah, cool. And you sort of listen to your body. If you're probably more active, you need a bit more energy at the end of the day to top up with the energy because, you know, 50%, 60% protein, you, you're still hungry to a degree and you need to top up with a little bit of energy but not excessive amounts. Yeah, I try to be kind of just intuitive on that one. And as long as it's just carbs for themselves or just fat by itself, I'm usually mm. pretty much fine. If yeah. I start combining them, I have to actually – willfully mindfully limit the quantity like if i'm gonna have a donut i can just have one you know what i mean versus if it's berries or something i just eat as many as i want mm, yeah, yeah um do you take supplements no i don't take any supplements at all unless you think that whey powder is a supplement and then i guess i do use that yeah although you know, whey powder, whey protein is sort of pre-digested so if you're not as active it may not be as satiating but if you're active, then, yeah, it's definitely um, a good way to pack in some more protein. Mm -hmm. um, thoughts on biohacking? Uh, biohacking is basically crap. Like, like <laughs> so I, I hate biohacking. Um, it's kind of dumb. Like, people think they can, like, short-circuit the system. It's like, okay, there's no such thing as a free lunch, and you can't get something for nothing. And biohackers are trying to cheat the game and cheat the system. It's like a cheat code here and you can trick your body into doing something. And it just doesn't work. Like you really just need hard work. You really want to do some cardio. You want to do some really hard resistance. You want to, it should be painful and you should be uncomfortable and you should be pushing your way out of your comfort zone. And there's no quick, easy fix or hack or um, biohacking is, I can't stand it. <laughs> Love it. Um, and how do you motivate clients that struggle to comply fully? Like, you know, is do you, do you encourage progress over perfection? Do they tend to get there if they build tiny habits? So, how do you how do you approach the psychology with your patients? Oh, okay. So, honestly, a lot of what I've learned or know about this, I owe to my wife. So, my wife is this amazing therapist and coach. Uh, so, she's a licensed therapist and does coaching. And uh, I've just kind of watched her, but what I've learned along the way is you have to, you have to understand, you have, first of all, you have to find out what's important to people. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, what motivates you? What's important to you? Is your mm -hmm. family important to you? Is having a good quality of life important to you? Is looking good naked important to you? What's important to you? And then you got to bring the, pull them back to the, the big why, what my wife calls the big why. It's like, why are you doing this? why are we even talking about your weight? Why are you trying to be healthier? And how does that tie into what it's important to you? Is it important that you're super healthy so you can still be here for your kids and your grandkids, you know, 50 years from now? Is mm -hmm. it, you know, so, so you have to find out what's important to people, what's their big why, and then keep reminding them of that. And then it's, and then it's all about like baby steps and, and, you know, it's like, okay, so it's important to you that you're healthy. So you're there for your family. And that's why we're here working on this. And so what's one little thing, what's your very best next move to get to where you want to be? It's like, you know, how can you be 1% better today than you were yesterday? Are you just going to mm -hmm. do one push up? Are you just mm -hmm. going to eat one chicken breast with uh, one of your meals? 
I mean, these are tiny things, but it's like mm -hmm. a move in the right direction and it just gets the ball rolling um, and some momentum going, you know what I mean? And then it's also about finding out what people like and what they're good at. It's like, okay, you're not exercising. Is there a type of exercise you like? Is there a type of exercise that appeals to you or that you're good at? What's one thing you could do right now to make that happen? So like you like walking, maybe you should get a Fitbit or a step counter and see if you can hit 20,000 steps in a day. You know, how cool would that be? Maybe you should track it every day. Maybe you should challenge yourself. You know, maybe you should write these down and graph them out. It's like, find out what people like, find out what they're good at nudge them in this direction, make mm -hmm. sure they're motivated by what's driving them and what's important to them. And then it's just make every day like a 1% better than the day before. It's just like mm -hmm. better and better, you know, and you want to make tiny changes that are sustainable is something that you can do long term, but you have to like it, you have to enjoy the process. And you have to be constantly motivated by your your big reason for doing it. Yeah, I'm reading um, BJ Fogg's Tiny Habits at the moment. He's all about, you know, making, you know, make it as small as possible, that one push-up that, like I say, let's walk a 1,000 steps today. And if you do that consistently, amp it up, 1,100 mm -hmm. steps tomorrow. And, you know, just – and the importance of celebrating and feeling good about that one thing you did mm -hmm. and that reinforces it and keeps it going. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so where do you want to see the nutrition space? If you had a dream go, where would – uh uh, you know, what's next in the nutrition world in, in Ted's dream? You spent a lot of time doing that, so you must have a, a hope for the, the, the nutrition world. So I, I my goal is to get the low-carb people and the low-fat people to realize that they're really just on the exact same – I mean, they're really two sides of the same coin. Mm. They're really all about – uh, team anti high carb and high fat together. And they're really about higher protein percent, a higher nutrient density. So in my opinion, the, the two big evils that are driving the entire global diabetes uh, epidemics are um, the refinement of carbs and the refinement of fats together, which drops mm -hmm. satiety per calorie. It makes you want to eat more or it dilutes that protein and minerals. So you're still hungry or, or, both of these combined. And so it's really all about high carb and high fat, refined carbs and refined fats. That's the problem. And the low carb and low fat people, they don't see it. They're like down in the trenches and they can't see over the wall. And people like yourself are like way up here. Like you have this like 50,000 foot view and you're just looking down on them like peasants, peasants <laughs> everywhere, arguing about carbs versus fat. And it's, it's really, you know, I want to see that go away. I want to see everyone be like, oh, wait, if you're really focusing on protein percent and nutrient density and protein and fiber and satiety per calorie, that's kind of low carb and low fat. And it's a little bit stupid to just like constantly, I would like to see plant versus animal go away. Mm. I would like to see carb and versus fat go away. These are smoke screens. These are distractions. These are false dichotomies. These are just muddying the water so nobody knows what the hell they should be eating. You know it's what I mean? Distraction from the essence of the truth that'll actually help you. And it really serves to everybody who can make money out of the current system, but it doesn't help people move forward towards. I know. Like you'll post this amazing meal with like fish and salad. And then the vegans are like, oh, you can't eat fish. It's like TMAO and you're going to have an instant heart attack. And, and then the carnivores are like, uh, I'm not going to eat that salad crab. I mean, that's just like, you know, that's what my food eats. Ah, right. And it's just super distraction, I think. Yeah, that's great. Um, anything else you wanted to add? This has been, yeah, somebody said this is like a Marty's dream come true. So, yeah, it has been and so great to chat to you. And um, thanks for all the influence and guidance and mentorship and um, example you've set both nutritionally and, you know, getting out there. And I've, I've, I've tried to change my life being more active and higher protein percentage. And, and yeah, it's really helped me. So thank you. So yeah. Um, anything else you wanted to add? Uh, well, just, I, I love your work. I love everything you do. And I feel like you and I are really uh, super closely aligned, kind of on the same arc. And, uh, and so just keep up the good work man. you're very inspirational. And like the amount of content you pump out, is just mind blowing <laughs> to me. I'm like, whoa, 
more content. Well, um, and I just love everything you do, and I follow it all. And so just keep doing what you're doing because it's good stuff. Oh, cheers, dude. Um, and um, I think one final graphic is a uh, shameless plug for the PE diet. <laughs> Great book. Um, I made my wife read it, and she went, eh, it's like reading your stuff, Marty. Went, yeah, yeah. Ten, I've been doing this together for a while. So, um, right. Yeah, it's it's awesome and just simplifies it to the essence. My stuff goes into a lot of data and nerdy stuff, and your stuff touches on the you know, biochemistry a little bit more than mine, but they're definitely um, very aligned, and I can't recommend your gear enough. Um, check it out. Check out Ted's Insta, Twitter, Facebook every podcast they're all good so yeah thanks man anything else that's it no i'm glad people finally got to see us in the same room because before that we were like almost like the same person <laughs> that's great thanks, so you really are two different people it's true yeah we are. we are thanks dude have a great night see all you. right you too thanks a lot man cheers thanks everyone